Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Shazam! Welcome, my sheltering friends, to the Job Shop Show. Your host, Jay Jacobs, here to help you get through your workday with a conversation with an incredibly hardworking shop owner, Kristen Carlson of Peerless Precision. They are out in Western Massachusetts. Peerless Precision is a very, very high-precision shop. This is a description from their website that describes what they mean by high precision. We are extremely competent when tolerances of 0.0001 thousandths or better are required and have delivered one helium light band in flatness, 0.00005 thousandths in roundness and 0.003 thousandths in wall thickness. Wow. So we're going to talk about how you actually do this, Kristen. And I also think what's sure to be enlightening is getting into what it is like to be a female in a male-dominated industry. And I love how Kristen is committed to growing her workforce, the time and effort she puts in there, particularly to bring those under the age of 30 into her shop. And the commitment to manufacturing, custom part manufacturing in general. So, so much to get into to discuss. We'll see uh, how this all unfolds and welcome to the Job Shop Show, Kristen. Thank you, Jay, it's good to be here. So, we are recording on a Monday after a stay-at-home sheltering weekend. And I actually sat down Saturday morning and asked myself, Jay, if you look back two or three months from now, Thinking about these big chunks of time that you had on your hands, what would you regret not doing if you, in fact, didn't do it? So one of my ahas was looking at this pile of books that I've been meaning to read. So I took the time out on Sunday and read a book, nonfiction, cover to cover, start to finish. So what are you doing with these big chunks of time on your hand, Kristen, assuming because your shop is still very active, that you have these these chunks of time. Oh, absolutely. You know, I've got definitely more time nowadays um, in the afternoons and the evenings uh, since, you know, all events and meetings have been canceled. So I'm, I'm uh, filling up a lot of free time that I'm not used to having. So I crochet. And, oh. um, you know, I've actually finished two blankets in the past three weeks and I'm starting another one. So it's a relaxing you know, hobby for me, and I just enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. How long would a blanket typically take you then if it 
me months, sometimes a year, because I <laughs> sit down and do it for more than a few minutes at a time. You know, right. and you know, since we're if we're especially because it was raining over the weekend, I put on some. I'm a baker as well, so I've been you know baking more cookies and practicing you know my cake skills and everything. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I sit down and I'll have a baking competition show on in the background while I'm making a blanket. So, you know, the other, the other thing I've actually been able to do is get a head start on my vegetable garden for this year. And how, how, what do you mean by that? So I have um, an indoor seed starting greenhouse and everything and lights in my basement. So grow vegetables, you know, inside if I need to, but I like outside the best. So I've gotten mm-hmm. a bunch of uh, seeds started, you know, and they're well, they've, I've got some that are three or four weeks into their growth period already and um, another set that I just started last week so that when it's finally planting time around here, I'll have a big head start on my vegetable garden. So you're out in Western Mass. Do you have a very high fence around your garden? Because I know that animals love to uh, come sample what you're growing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a six foot fence around my my yard. Um, it also helps keep my uh, American Staffordshire Terrier, Bruno, uh, contained and he, you know, he keeps all the animals away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they probably don't want to mess with him. No. So looking back, and I want to talk about you as a female owner in a job shop. How did you get started in manufacturing? So I've grown up uh, at Peerless Precision. My dad purchased the company when uh, I was 15 uh, in 1997. He was mm-hmm. a real entrepreneur, um, had started a couple of businesses when we were living out in the Chicago area and decided instead of starting another one from the bottom up, you know, why don't I, why doesn't he look to buy or purchase a company that was a little bit more established that he could really turn into something of his own? Mm-hmm. So he found Peerless Precision, um, bought it. Uh, at the time, it was mostly a grinding, grinding and lop- lapping shop. We did a little bit of uh, manual uh, milling and lathe, but not a whole lot of CNC yet. Um, so we had this opportunity to purchase this company that had a lot of potential and then take it to the next level. Um, I started did, working there. Sorry, go excuse ahead. Excuse me. Did he have any background in part manufacturing before he bought Peerless Precision? Not really. He, um, the, the one manufacturing experience he had was working for a casket company out in Eastern Mass when he was uh, right out of grad school. Okay. So but he went, before he um, started creating, uh, starting his own businesses, he was a, a financial, uh, like usually a CFO. He worked for Service mm. Master probably for about 10 to 15 years as uh, their CFO in the various locations. So he had the financial background. He was a, a math major and a business major, um, or a, you know, math, math mm-hmm. major through uh, his first four years. And then he went to get his MBA uh, later on, so. So not the traditional path to get into. No, and that's okay. You know, right. sometimes non-traditional is the best way to go about it, you know. You are 15 years old then. Your father yep. buys a shop. What happens oh, yeah. next? I, I um, started working there on Saturdays. I would go in with him for four hours and I was the shop kid. So I would be sweeping the floors, uh, jump, you know, climbing into the machines to clean out all the, the metal and everything. Um, they would put me on a bandsaw. Um, 
you know, if they were really backed up on uh, cutting up material, I do the finger check with my foreman every hour to make sure I hadn't lost any, you know, it was his, like, <laughs> <laughs> he'd walk up to me and say finger check and I'd hold both hands up and he'd say, good to go. Um, you know, so that was, that was how I got into it. I tried, um, machining itself when I was about 16, they put me on a drill press. Um, and I found out machining itself wasn't for me, but the whole aspect of what we did has always intrigued me. You know, I'm, I'm one of those kids who grew up, I was one of those kids growing up building, you know, playing with Legos all the time. My dad and I would build furniture together in the basement. Him and mm -hmm. I built my first, uh, uh, bicycle together. Huh. So, you know, that whole tinkering thing, um, you know, later on when I was in college, I would come home during the summer and then after I was done with college and I did uh, shipping and receiving and started getting into purchasing. So it allowed me to learn the other side of what we did, you know, and get to know all the parts and our vendors and our customers. Mm -hmm. Did you go right into the shop from college? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I worked at Fleet Bank when I was at college and mm -hmm. then when home I would you know work at the shop but pretty much when I was done with college my dad said there was they had just lost their shipping receiving purchasing person said there was an opening you want to come and work for for the company again I said sure why not okay and how long did you stay in that role so I was in that role for about almost two years um at the time, I was not only working with both my parents, but I was living at home with everybody, and I'm the oldest of four. So mm -hmm. I was, you know, I was 21 at the time. I was living with my three younger siblings and both my parents and going a little stir crazy. Um, so I, my, now who's my husband, Mark and I had friends who had moved to San Diego the year before. So mm -hmm. he had friends who moved to San Diego in 2004, we went out to visit and then we actually moved out there in 2005 um, to kind of oh. get away um, and see, you know, my, my big thing was, can I, can I survive outside of the family business? Mm -hmm. You know, that as a crutch and everything and make, you know, I make my own path instead mm -hmm. of um, adhere to someone else's path. Were you in manufacturing in San Diego? No, I'm a, I'm one of those Jane of all trades. I, I always figure out what I need to do and then become the best at what I do. So um, I started off, I became a merchandiser for a gourmet cookware store and cookies. Oh, wow. I, worked at, I worked in retail in high school. Um, mm -hmm. So I had a little experience with that. I ended up uh, managing the warehouse um, after about six months. Um, you know, things went downhill within the company and I left and then I became a buyer for a fire alarm contractor. Um, so I was the buyer, uh, inside sales. I was service coordinator. I wrote up contracts. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, my uh, boss at the time taught me to be an auto mechanic. And <laughs> I ended up, um, I would go on job walks with the salespeople and help them bid jobs. You know, we ended up putting a bunch of stuff on online and I built our online website at the time so we could sell, you know, so our, our customers could, could shop online for what they needed and see what they, we had. In How stock. did you learn the skills to program a website? Um, I went to a four hour HTML code seminar at one of the community colleges in San Diego. So I did it all based on HTML code. I, we didn't have any software at the time. I mm -hmm. learned how to write the code and then went from there. Hmm. You are 
different than a the trajectory of a lot of second generation owners in that typically the one of two paths will occur the second generation owner will always have worked at the shop and no outside work experience or they may have worked in the shop when they were growing up in high school and maybe summers in college but they then after college go somewhere else and work a while and then come into the shop but you have a interesting perspective i think because you actually went right into the shop along the lines of the first typical owner but then you said no i'm going to do what the second uh, type of uh, second generation owner would do so from that experience and background what would you say to a shop owner who is looking to bring one or more of their children into the business do you think what are the what are the pros and cons of going straight into the business or getting some experience working for others you know when you go straight into the business without any experience outside of that you end up potentially having tunnel vision because you only see how it's done there and you don't get any um, outside views on how other companies might operate of the same size, maybe not the same industry. Um, mm -hmm. I personally think it is extremely beneficial for anyone who works into a family business to get outside experience um, because it gives a different perspective and it allows you to take off the blinders and look at the big picture, think outside the box. Mm -hmm. um, both places I worked in San Diego, um, they were both small family owned companies. And I got, I got to see, you know, just through my, my working there, what I thought they did really well, what I thought they could have done better. And then I took all of that back when I came back to Peerless and I used it at my shop once I made the decision to come home. How much time would you say is the, or a range of time to be away from the family business before coming back in? What sort of makes sense? I'd, I'd say I was gone for almost eight years. Um, oh. I'd say someone needs to put a few, probably a couple, a few years minimum, you know, uh, in between leaving and coming back. And probably work at more than one company. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not one who ever liked to bounce around a lot. Sometimes, you know, the cards just didn't lay out the way mm -hmm. you wanted to, you know. Sure. So, um, but I don't think a six-month, you know, excursion outside of the family business would do a whole lot of good. It doesn't allow, you know, anyone to really learn how the other company operates or, you know, what, you know, what the business looks like. Mm-hmm. Great. What so, brought you back into the business then? So, um, you know, my dad always wanted me to be doing what I'm doing now, which is one of the reasons I fought it too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was a stubborn man and I'm just as stubborn as he was. Um, he was diagnosed with um, colon cancer in 2009. Oh. When um, it was actually kind of, my dad was always the, pinnacle of bad timing. So he decided we were on a family vacation to Cancun and he dropped that bomb on me there. Um, and, wow. <laughs> wow. and 
he had actually asked me at that point, if something were to ever happen to him, would I come home to either help my mom decide to sell the business or keep it running? And I mm -hmm. said, absolutely. You know, it's also, you know, oldest, oldest child, you know, responsibilities and everything. It's just the type of person I am. Um, he went through, you know, chemo and surgeries and he was given a clean bill of health uh, at the end of 2010 was told not to come back for another oncologist appointment for a year. And then um, at the beginning of 2012, it had metastasized and come back. Mm. So um, at that point he was terminal. Um, and again, the, the king of bad timing, he called me at eight o'clock in the morning in San Diego or 8.15 um, and I was at work. And he called mm -hmm. me to tell me that what, it, you know, what had happened and um, you know, cause he wanted me to be able to sit down <laughs> when I heard it. Uh, again, it's, it's, uh, I look at all this stuff and I just think it's funny now because of, you know, knowing who my dad was and, and the way, you know, trying to do the right thing, but not always the best of timing. Yeah. Uh, him and I hadn't talked about our agreement in 2009 at that point, but I went home that day and I told Mark, my husband, what was going on. And I said, I don't know if we're going to, if I'm going to go back to work at Peerless, but whatever happens, I need to move back home. Um, you know, to not just, you know, because I wanted to be with my father, but I needed to be here to support, you know, my mom and my siblings as well. Right. And, um, so about a week later, my dad actually called me and he said, you know, I probably all already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you one more time. Will you come home to help mom with the business? <clears throat> and I said, absolutely. And my mom said, my dad had forgotten about our deal in 2009. He actually fell out of his chair because he couldn't believe that I said yes. <laughs> wow. So ultimately, um, while the circumstances were definitely not ideal on my coming back here, um, I'm, I'm, I am very glad that I did. And I will, and I will say it now that I don't have to say it straight to his face, um, but my dad was right and he knew what I would be good at. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to say that he's probably a little jealous because I'm taking the company to new levels that he never would have ima imagined. I'm sure he'd be very proud of you, Kristen. Yeah, thank so, you, Jay. Yeah. You are, you had a beyond jumping right back into the business. You obviously have another uh, hurdle to overcome, which is the fact that you are a female in that male dominated world of custom part manufacturing. What can you tell me about your experiences there and maybe how it's changed over the years or your perspective? Any, we'll just throw it out there. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it is definitely not always easy being a woman in the manufacturing world. Um, you know, for, for a long time, anytime, you wouldn't see any women on the shop floor even running the companies. They'd all be working in the front office, you know, as mm -hmm. reception, purchasing, whatever. Um, <clears throat> I'm very lucky that I've always had, we've had a great group of people that work at Peerless Precision. And when I came back in 2012, 90% of the people there I had known from either when I was 15 or when I worked there after college. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they, they knew, most of them knew um, how vital it was for my return, um, for the, the health of the company. So, you know, there were, there were some people within the shop and it, they actually are no longer with us um, at Peerless for various reasons, but 
the view was always, well, she's just some silly little girl and she doesn't know what she's talking about. And I would hear that and I, and I say, challenge accepted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I speak to, um, I speak to students a lot and I really, I, a lot of schools and different groups in our community have, um, will bring just a group of girls in with me. And, you know, I always tell them, I said, look, I'm the oldest of four. My dad wanted a boy and he got me. And I'm like, and that's why I have the backbone that I do now. Mm. You know, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, you, you get the people who think that you don't know what you're doing, you know, because you're either, you know, it's, uh, well, she's the boss's daughter. She's just some silly little girl, you know, she's going to mm -hmm. run the, the end of the ground. Um, but you, know, you I, had worked at the company as you said, 90% of the people knew you. You had yeah. been there through high school. You've worked there full-time after college. And yep. it should have been pretty obvious that you knew what you were doing. Maybe you didn't have the responsibilities, but I'm sure whatever role you had, you did very well. Yeah, you so, know, I was also also the kid who got up and moved to California. You know, so I left. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was just, there was a lot of unknowns. Um, you know, unknowns from our customers, unknowns from the guys, from the banker. Um, you know, I didn't, I had no idea what was going, you know, what I was doing. I just knew that, you know, cause you're also dealing with, you know, stepping into this role, stepping into the, the, you know, the whole, what does she know and everything. And then trying to grieve for the loss of my father at, at the same time. So sure. it was, it was like the perfect storm of, um, fog, you know, brain fog pretty much. Um, so what's the story you would tell yourself back at that time to get you through and through the day and, and not back down, not accept the, the I don't want to say defeat, but, yeah. uh, you know, concede to perhaps the, the beliefs of others. Yeah. Well, luck, luckily for me, I, um, you know, I'm good at ignoring that kind of talk. Um, you know, it's still, you still hear it and it still hits you right, right in the, the heart pretty much. But mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, I would tell myself because I doubted myself for a long time and I did not understand what other people saw in me and why they relied on me. And, you know, but now, now I see it, you know, because I'm, I do, I take chances, I take risks, you know, my, um, I take smart risks. Um, and I would tell past Kristen, just to know that everything you're doing, you know, is right. Mm -hmm. Be confident in that. Know that you are, you are who everyone thinks you are. And you can do this. And is that what you told yourself back then too? No, I, I would do, I would, <laughs> I would say, uh, um, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing right now, pretty much like, but we're going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Or you know, if people would be coming, you know, it's, it's, I'd get questions from other owners all the time. And I just couldn't understand why all these other shop owners who had been in the business for 10, 20, you know, years, maybe some, mm -hmm. some running a company longer than I've even been alive. Yeah. And um, I never understood it. And I, you know, I, I started working with a, a professional and personal coach slash consultant about three years ago. And mm -hmm. one of the first things that she told me was that I don't know how to take a compliment. And I, I agreed with her. I was raised not to, you know, be able to take a compliment. And mm -hmm. um, 
her working with her and getting to that point and then all of a sudden realizing why you know why the company is doing so well why the customers tell me that they prefer working with me over my father um you know hmm. why why we only i didn't have anyone quit you know when when i became the president um you know so nobody jumped ship on me it's it, it's just all these things that have happened that i could never i guess give myself a pat on the back for mm -hmm. and um and now i can and now i know why people come to me and why we're why we're doing so well and you know i understand why the customers well they always they say they always loved working with my dad they like working with me a lot better why is that yeah yeah and i can accept that now but why why do they say that oh well so my dad was one of those people who um would tell you what you need um i'm the one who listens to what you need and then i tell you if we can do it or not okay you know, I want my yep. customers to tell us what they're looking for. I'm not going to tell you what you need. I don't know what you need, but you have to tell me what you need. You have to tell me what you're looking for, and then we'll provide it. Um, so it sounds like you ask a lot of questions, and you're a good listener. I do. I do. Um, my dad was a big talker, and I, <laughs> the art of listening is a, a very valuable skill to have. The other side that my customers really like is I always bring whatever swag we have. Um, or donuts, like when we go for a meeting and everything. And the first time I did that, we had, oh, I had gotten beer, uh, cozies to give mm -hmm. out instead of pens. So I brought, you know, a bunch of my customers one day cozies and they're like, your dad never brought stuff to us. I'm like, well, you're not dealing with my dad anymore. <laughs> <laughs> never underestimate the, the swag or the, the donuts or, yeah. or lunch. It's, it's so appreciated by the customers. Yeah, you know, I try, I try and add, you know, the humanity factor of to what I do. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's hard, it's hard running a company. It's you, you know, it's especially in my shop, and I'm sure this is the same for a lot of family-owned businesses. But when you grow up with people, you know, you're friendly with everybody, and yes. um, but then you have to draw that line too, where you can be friendly, but you can't really be friends with them because it's. Mm -hmm. you know, there's it, unfortunately, and I and I can't say um, anyone at my shop would do this or never do this because it's happened before. But you know, as soon as that line gets crossed, it's when people see that you know people tend to see that opening where you can they can take advantage of that friend factor mm -hmm. or, and everything. So we have that clear line where look, I'm friendly with everyone, but I'm still the boss. You know, this is my company. The buck stops with me. You know, right. and, and I'm not going to be put in that type of position. Mm -hmm. The um, before we before we get into some other areas, I just have a couple other questions about being a female in in sure. the manufacturing world. Do you? Well, first of all, how has it changed from 2012 to today? Do you think it's gotten easier or better, or how would you describe it? I think it really depends on where you work. Um, I do, I haven't really seen a huge increase in the amount of woman-owned shops around. Right. Um, but you are, start, you are starting to see more and more women on the shop floor. Um, mm -hmm. so, so in 2012, we didn't have any women on the shop floor. There was one in shipping and receiving, and then my mom and I up in the front office. Now we have six women, young women on the shop floor. You know, and I think we're one of the highest concentrations in our region. Um, we have a really good support system 
within our within our shop. You know, one it's they get I bring them in. I'm you know I'm I'm a good role model for for breaking mm-hmm. down barriers and everything. Um, they also you know anyone in the anyone in the company they know they have, I have an open door policy as long as the door's not closed, and um, you know come to me for anything. And I and I tell these young women specifically like look. <clears throat> This is a shop environment, you know, and sensitive ears not apply, first of all. <laughs> you know, it's, you have to have a bit of a, um, I have a mouth, I have the mouth of a sailor. Um, and, and and I've heard that, so I can <laughs> say yes. <laughs> I've been talking to Ben, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and, you know, but also, you know, we've, our, our guys, you know, they've got wives, sisters, daughters, you know, they're mm-hmm. very, of them are they're very respectful to, towards women if mm-hmm. anything changes i need i want to know immediately so i can put right. a stop to it um even when it's if it's outside vendors or i mean i had to pretty much ban a um one of the electricians firm or electro electrical contractors from going into specific rooms because i was getting reports um mm. you know it's not it's not like people are hooting and hollering at you on the shop floor um Right. I haven't. I. I'm. I think I'm very lucky um, with the team that we have, and able. You know, in my ability to being able to bring them in. You know, and I've, well, I've also become. Well, that's you know, a that's yeah. a, definitely a reflection, though, on the shop owner, whether. Yeah it's you being a female shop owner or if there's a male who owns a shop it the what's acceptable what's tolerable comes from the top down and if you if you don't follow what you say then it's not going to happen so kudos to you for creating that environment thank you and as you were saying it it made me think that perhaps there's not a lot of female shop owners now, but the way that a lot of shops are started is from someone who has an entrepreneurial spirit, who is a individual contributor or maybe a manager, but they're in a shop environment. And then they go off on their own. They might buy the machining center and literally put it in their garage. So you're creating, helping to create the foundation for future female Mm -hmm. shop owners because if we don't have them working on the floor, then where are they going to come from? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So along those lines, the uh, workforce is a huge area that you're involved in and the bringing the young women into the company. And I say young because you just wrote a blog specifically on workforce recruiting Mm -hmm. and I encourage folks to go to your website to read it and by the way what is your website so we can just share that with the audience now it is www.peerlessprecision.com and that's p-e-e-r-l-e-s-s yes okay so one of the things that you are really focused on is bringing people who are under 30 into the shop and you are a very high precision shop. So that's a, that's courage right there because (laughs) typically for at least my understanding, and I want to talk about high precision later, but high precision, a lot of it is art as opposed to science. So typically that means that skills and experience that 
happen over time. Yet you have a quite a few folks in your company who are under the age of 30. So I want to talk about the training that you do and maybe the onboarding, but first maybe step back and say, how do you, how do you get folks who want to apply to work at Peerless Precision? Sure. So, so that's a, um, Almost a two. Are we are we still focusing on the younger kids or just people in general? Let's just talk about the workforce in general because we say yeah. that there's a skills gap, and I think that you're addressing it quite effectively. And then we'll we'll talk about the the, the training afterwards. Sure. So so anytime we we've got an open position that we're either adding one or trying mm-hmm. to one that's recently been vacated, um, the preference is always to try and f- find someone with experience first. Um, you know, because then there's less training that has to be done in order to get them to the point. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll put ads out, um, locally. Um, I've started using indeed.com and that's actually been pretty successful. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's always a certain amount of time that we can hold a job open for an experienced person before we start looking towards co-op students and internships, or, um, sometimes even adults who have gone to, um, a training program for one of our, you know, regional employment boards or mass hire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we have, if we have a position, uh, you know, an ad out that hasn't really gotten any good bites um, for, you know, three to four weeks, then we have to start rethinking, you know, what we're, what we're looking for. And can we, can we, you know, afford to train someone for the next three or four years to get, get them to that point? Mm-hmm. Uh, because training in itself is a, you know, it, it can put a big strain on the people doing it mm-hmm. um, because we don't have dedicated training staff. It's you, every time we bring in someone, whether they're entry level or not, there's always initial training It's always done with someone else within that department. So, you know, the, the new, the new hire will be set up on a machine while the person training them is on the machine right next to them. So they're there to answer any questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far as, when we start getting into trying, when we do have, I guess I'd call it some free time, quote unquote, um, where we can really dedicate a lot of time to training an intern or co-op student, you know, I just have to call up one of the schools in my area and tell them what I'm looking for. And I always mm-hmm. you know, specify, we're looking for someone who wants to run a CNC machine or wants to get on the manual machining side. I need someone for inspection. Um, because I want, I want the co-op or intern student that's being sent my way to be able to do what they want to do and fit, and fit mm-hmm. the description. So I don't want someone who's interested in inspection to come in to run a CNC machine and vice versa. It's, they're not, they won't succeed. Um, you know, the benefit, the benef- big benefit of hiring students specifically um, is that they're not tainted by working at other places for, you know, decades or <laughs> like a clean slate and yeah. they're, they're not so set in their ways. You can actually mold them to be the employees they need to be and the employee that you need them to be. Do you see them viewing working at a shop now as a career path? Yeah. And today, and maybe today more so than when you've, when you came back in 2012 is is it changing the perception you know where where uh, there's let's see since 2012 i have hired i think six or seven co-op students or interns and only one of them still doesn't work work for us anymore and it was mm. just you no know, it, it it wasn't meant to be 
Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, all of them, I'm, I'm one of those where I, you know, I vet, I vet my new hires a lot and I, you know, get the referrals from their, their teachers, um, you know, make sure almost handhold them through the, the first year um, to make sure that they are going to be a fit. Cause I don't like to, you know, when I hire, I do my best to hire for keeps. Um, what is yeah. a, what, what are a couple tricks that you can share on vetting these types of folks? You know, it's, I, I walk out on the show, you know, the, well, vetting them, um, you know, it's just, I want to find out from, for the kids, you know, I'm talking to their teachers a lot, um, yes. you know, and just to find out, you know, are they, you know, what their absences are like, you know, how are their grades? I mean, they usually can't go out on co-ops or interns without having a certain grade point average with a good attendance record. So that's usually the least of my worries, you know, but we, you know, it's, if they have past work experience too, I also look to see knowing that they're younger, you know, mm -hmm. okay. So have you worked at five different grocery stores, you know, in one year, you know, trying to get an after school job and, and, you know, I look for, you know, I try to find work ethic um, patterns. Um, I actually hold a work ethic seminar occasionally work ethic 101 for anyone in my shop who's younger than me. You know, and that sometimes includes like 35 year olds. So, <laughs> wait, wait. What, why, why did you come up with this and what is covered? Um, so, it's basically because I was hiring a lot of students, and you know, you get these, um, these kids coming in on a co-op and they are just doing so well while they're still in school, while they're on their co-op and all of a sudden they graduate from high school and it's like, oh, oh, do I really need to show up on time? Maybe I'm not going to pull my pants up all the way, you know, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that, you know, things that, that I know quantify a good work, work ethic. Oh, if I'm late, maybe I should call and let them know why I'm going to be late instead of just rolling in you know, or I do need to call out. I can't just text someone and tell them I'm not going to come into work. You know, it's so, so, you know, they're, they're all, all this work ethic is enforced while they're in school by the teachers, you know, right. and they know that if they slip at, at their, their co-op opportunity, the teachers will get no, you know, they'll get notified and then they'll lose, they'll get on probation or lose their co-op. So they do everything they can because now all of a sudden they're not, they're not in class, you know, one, every other week and they're getting paid to do what they want to do. Um, you know, machining and everything. And then the graduation happens, you know, senioritis, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I remember senioritis very well. And, um, but now all of a sudden it's not, they're not getting graded on how they perform at work anymore. At least they don't think they are. So when I started seeing that mm. of my recently graduated co-op students, some of the, again, some people who, you would think would know better, but, you know, just did not have a good work ethic. I pulled, again, it was for everyone who was younger than me. And at the time I did it, I think I was 33 and that included a 32 year old. And mm -hmm. I, you know, pulled them into the conference room there. I think there were seven or eight of us. And I just said, I, you know, I want you guys to tell me what you think constitutes a good work ethic. And I'm going to write it up, write it up on the whiteboard while you're talking, you know, saying it, and then we're going to go through the list. And they, I don't remember half, half of what they told me, but none of it, none of it was like a good work ethic. I put them all up on the board, and then I turned around and I looked at it, and I said, these are all great, but none of them are right. So, uh, you know, and then we go to, you know, put in a list of what constitutes a go good work ethic, and it wasn't, it wasn't rocket science, you know, come to work, yeah. 
you know, come to work on time. If you're going to be late, call out all that, all that, all that stuff that we were all raised with, but the, you know, current generation isn't always being taught that. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, I ended up, I did end up having one of my machinists quit after that, the 32 year old, because he was trying to throw someone else under the bus and I called him out on it, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. So the, Workforce development, you're involved in a lot of organizations. And from reading your blog, I know that one of the reasons the teachers will probably talk to you or return a call is that you have spent a lot of time in the high schools. You open your shop up to tours. Uh, I'm sure there's other ways that you're involved in your local community. Plus, though, you're involved with quite a few manufacturing organizations Mm -hmm. and what would you say to other shop owners who perhaps don't see that as a good investment in time what are they missing so they're they're missing the opportunity one to directly influence um not only how vocational schools are teaching their students but also um getting traditional high schools back on board with bringing the trades back in Mm -hmm. um once you start reaching out to schools, working with them, doing tours or speaking events, you know, you, you end up being one of the go-to companies where any of the schools will call you when they've got the perfect co-op student or intern for you. You know, so I'm, um, you know, even though it's hard to find experienced people, I have never had, I have not had a shortage in the past eight years of being able to get, you know, at least a co-op or intern into my shop. So, in other words, you have to not complain about the workforce shortage, but actually get out there and network with the people who are connected to the people who are looking for jobs or maybe looking for jobs or being trained to fill a job. Yeah, that's right. Be the change that you want to see happen. You know, it takes, it takes us, mm-hmm. I hear so many times that, well, the, you know, the, the, the schools aren't telling their students all these opportunities and, or the parents don't know. And, and I'm just like, look, it's, it's up to us, you know, mm-hmm. because we're the ones in it. We're the ones who are facing this, you know, and we've had, we've been facing this workforce sh- shortage crisis for years. This isn't. Decades. <laughs> um, yeah. Decades. Absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, some people, <laughs> Some people rather complain. There, there are people out there who just like to complain. Um, you know, an unfortunate, you know, that's, that's not going to solve anything. Um, we have to be the change. We have to make sure that everyone's aware of the opportunities that come with being in machining. We have to change the narrative. I think as well, if, and it sounds like you've done this, but we were a big supporter of the vocational school in Nashua, New Hampshire, Nashua Community College when I owned Rapid. And they have a advanced machining technology program. They got a huge donation from Haas for machining centers, which is great because we used Haas at Rapid, but they had cam software that was probably seven years old. I don't even remember what package it was. And I heard about that. And I said, well, we're using MasterCam and I want the students who are coming out 
I don't want to have to spend the time training them, getting them up to speed on Mastercam. So we made a donation of several seats of Mastercam. I forget how many seats, but it was roughly $7,500. Mm-hmm. And for us, that was a good investment. It, would, it truly was an investment. It was a donation to the school, but it, it was an investment for my shop standpoint and one that I thought would have a great return for us as well as the manufacturing community in general around us. I was so surprised. They told us that was the largest donation that had been ever made uh, for, uh, from the um, uh, a pr- private company mm-hmm. to the community college because the Haas Machining Centers were uh, purchased through state funds. Right. And that just $7,500 for a company my size wasn't a lot of money, but it made such a huge difference. So I just want to share that with other job shop owners. If you are, let's say your inspection department, they have a quality program. If you want them to use a particular type of equipment in your inspection department, then consider the donation or even donate a used piece of equipment and buy yourself a new one. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> at least they're using, using the same brand and the same sort of tools. Right, right. And I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, we don't always have, um, I mean, we're, we, run, we run our machines into the ground most of the time. So we don't always have a, a old piece of machinery that we can donate. Right. That's not usable. Um, but, you know, like, uh, uh, there's definitely, um, you know, I'm on, I'm on the advisory committee for Westfield Technical Academy. So that's the vocational school pretty much in the backyard of Peerless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the bigger shops in our area will, you know, they'll donate their, um, one of their maintenance technicians to fix the machines at the, at the school so they don't have to. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't have to be product. It can be time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, we're always, we go through our raw stock um, at least once or twice a year and anything that's out of aerospace specifications, we, we give them a list. What do you want? And it's, hmm. short, you know, or old tooling, gauging, anything that can be spared. Right. And for them, you may think that it's well for whatever reason you can't use it within your shop but it is quite possibly much better than anything they have at the school oh yeah i mean and the you know the programs are usually are generally underfunded in general Uh, absolutely Um, get and to get um approval to buy new new machines is like pulling teeth um, you know, and you can't always wait for a grant to get approved, or maybe the grant got awarded to another school in the state. There's, it's just, uh, there's a, a lot that goes into it. So anything, anything that we can help with, we always do. Beyond the local schools, you spend a lot of time sitting on different organizations, advisory and steering committees, mm-hmm. and in particular, the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association, is one that you're pretty heavily involved in. Why spend so much time there? Uh, it was another thing that I was kind of uh, fathered into. When I, uh, when I first came back to Massachusetts um, in 2012, my dad, my dad had been a board member and I think a two-time past president with the Western Mass chapter. And he mm. said, they're going to these meetings with your mom. It's going to be really beneficial for you. And I said, you know, I've never, I was never a big participator, you know, <laughs> Okay. you know, I had gone to meetings for my boss in San Diego, but I never, you know, really got a lot out of it. So I started going to these board meetings 
um, you know, and it, it exposed that experience itself. And then going to the events, membership meetings, tours, I got to know people. And then, you know, all people who wanted to see us succeed, um, you know, after the after my father passed, um, some who wanted us not to succeed because they wanted to hire everyone at my shop. <laughs> You know, but regardless, it was all, you know, it was all of a sudden I was part of this community that I didn't know existed. Um, so, you know, first it was board meetings, just going to the board meetings, going to the events. Eventually my mom became my, the alternate board member and I, I got voted in as the full board member. Um, I think it was three years into, no, maybe after two years, um, they voted me in as vice president because I said, sure, I'll do it. And mm -hmm. then, um, you know, I, I started doing, I became the head of the uh, chair of the programs committee, started planning events. We hold, we've been holding an annual pig roast at my shop every August for, it's going to be, if, if, if we're able to have it this year, this will be the 14th year we've done it. Um, mm. And then after my dad passed away, that it used to be just a free fun event. Um, and now we get, oh, we get a bunch of sponsors. We get more sponsors than we ever did before. And when my dad passed away, we all voted at the board that it would be used as a fundraiser for a memorial educational fund in his name. So it kind of has gotten a little bit bigger <laughs> since then. Um, I, you know, play in the golf tournament now and, you know, or I've been doing that for a while. And then vice president became president. Um, I will say very upfront, I don't know if any of my board members will hear this, but two, I'm, I'm, my, I'm on my second term as president. Both times I got voted in as, at a board meeting I was not at. <laughs> <laughs> i knew it was gonna happen but it was just the principle of it you know yeah well, um i am this is i mean i can't do another well, another term after this one but i gotta take some time off <laughs> sure but you is you've been involved with the ntma for a long time what would yeah. you tell a shop owner who's not a member of the ntma or maybe another national organization what at least for a period of time and you if you want to become an officer great if you want to become a, the president in the western mass chapter even better but uh, what, what are the advantages of joining the ntma as so as one of our members told me when they joined a few years ago um he was sick of being on an island by himself in this huge ocean mm -hmm. he found out there were all these other islands surrounding him why not, you know, why not come together? So he felt, you know, when, when he wasn't part of the association, it was, it's a very, it, it can be a very lonely existence. Um, you know, running a company, running a machine shop in general, all of a sudden you're part of this associate, you know, any association that has to do with, you know, what your work works related to. Um, and now you're, you're a part of this community. We share best practices. Sometimes we just have complaining sessions. Um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, so you all, you realize that what you're going through, a thousand other business owners are probably going through the same thing. We all have the same pains. Um, we all deal with the same, you know, ups and downs. Um, sometimes business is good for a lot of us and it's down for others and then vice versa. And you get to talk through all that. Um, I've used the, the relationships that I've built through the NTMA to also benchmark things in my company. So, mm. you know, you, you get a, all, you know, we, we open our doors to each other all the time mm. and, you know, it's, we know that we're not stealing any proprietary information. We actually don't, we have, 
I'm pretty, I'm 99% sure it's actually written in our um, bylaws that, you know, the, the members can't poach each other's employees. So, you know, we've got this, this community where we're not stealing from each other. Um, you know, if someone from one of my member shops applied to a job position that I had open, um, I would still probably interview them, but I'm going to go ahead and call their, you know, my, my colleague first and let them know so they have the opportunity to counteroffer or find mm -hmm. out why they're leaving. Um, you don't get that um, unless there's a group community that you're part of. Um, you know, it's helped when we were starting our lean, our lean transformation. You know, I'd go into other shops that were doing more lean manufacturing than we are and mm -hmm. share their ideas here. Take this form, take this form, feel free to copy it. You know, it's just, it's, it's sharing mm. and, you know, it's, it's working together. You find out that, you know, while we're all competitors, we're not really competitors. We can be collaborators. I don't think many shops can compete with you on the tight tolerances that you hold. So this is perhaps a good segue. I, we called ourselves a precision shop, but we, we didn't want to do precision work. And although we could do precision work to a point, nothing like what you're doing. So your shop, again, hits tolerance, the one helium light band in thickness. What the heck is that? I had never heard of that before. I mean, it's, it's so it's it, a flatness and I wish I flatness. Had, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. It's, it's actually, I wish I had the chart in front of me right now because the chart that shows the different helium light bands, we actually have this special light box that we're able to magnify into surfaces to see. And if you go like one helium light band, it will show lines in the material that are slightly wavy. And that's wow. almost, you know, almost completely flat. Um, I don't honestly, off the top of my head, I do not know what the plus or minus tolerance is, <laughs> you know, within that, but we're talking about angstroms. Um, right. you know, zero, zero helium light bands. Well, you know, when you magnify it, all the lines will be completely straight without any curvature in them whatsoever. Um, that, you know, it's, it's important, you know, like for mirrored sur uh, surfaces, uh, sometimes with matched sets for airplanes, um, and it just depends. I mean, we can't we can achieve it. So, okay, how do you achieve it? How is that done? Through lapping, either roll lapping or hand lapping. So you know, I'm sure everyone out there will know. I mean, lapping's the ver a very slow rate of material removal, and it's 100% mm -hmm. manual. Um, so there's there's a certain feel. Um, for experienced lappers, well, they're, you know, depending on the material they're working on, what the lapping compound is and how they're achieving it, whether it's round or flat, um, they'll just, you know, they'll know that after five seconds, it's going to feel, you know, slightly more flat. And then they're only going to have to do five more seconds. Um, I wish I could, uh, you know, apply some like scientific reasoning to that. But whenever I talk to the guys in my lapping room, it's like, well, you just know how it feels. So How old is the youngest person in your lapping room? How old is the youngest person in my lapping room? He's going to be 30 this year in October. I would imagine that that is a skill set that just, it just takes so much time to, as you said, using the right type of media to, with the right type of wheel and all those different variables. Is your shop air conditioned? 
Oh yeah. I mean, our lapping, our lapping room is actually, our lapping and our inspection rooms are the most environmentally controlled. So lapping, we have to stay within 70 degrees, plus or minus a few, um, and then right around 40 to 44% humidity to maintain those flatness readings, the millionth of an inch tolerances that we're working with. I mean, the whole shop is air conditioned, but that one's really controlled. So are your customers, when they do quality assurance on the parts you're bringing, are they know, is that a standard from your shop to their inspection area, that, that temperature and that humidity so yes. that it's all consistent when you're measuring yeah. parts? Yeah, yeah, it is. And then, you know, they get a full, for anything that goes through our lapping department where we're working to, you know, one helium light band or millionths of an inch in tolerances, you know, they get a full, a full inspection report on every part to show you what the measurements are, you know, at the shop and the controlled environment. Um, you know, you have to account for shipping and transit times and everything, put it back in a cooler room to let them, you know, go back down to size. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we will Gee. get occasionally saying we're not getting the same readings are you are and it's like well how long has it been sitting you know in the environmental mm -hmm. controls have you put it back in there and mm -hmm. it's there it's their their uh specifications we're working to and sometimes we do um we do have better inspection equipment and capabilities than some of our customers so <laughs> are there special requirements for the materials that you're buying you mentioned for bar stock, the tolerances, if it didn't, didn't meet the tolerance, you might donate it to the shop. So what, and are, is it all, I, I think you do a lot of defense in aerospace. Mm -hmm. Is it American made materials? Just tell me about the materials and what's different and special about the starting point to make these types of parts. Sure, so 90% of what we buy is, um, uh, now it's it's from uh, the United States. I think mm -hmm. ten percent of our material ends up coming uh, overseas, um, sometimes from Italy. Um, I think mostly from Italy. I haven't looked at a certification in a while, but um, you know because we are defense, everything that steel gets defars applies put on it right away. Mm -hmm. You know, we it's so the preference our our material suppliers always go towards domestic first. Um, you know, unless there's a really cheaper option, you know, that we don't have to wait three weeks for. It just depends on what they're stocking. Um, you know, any of, all of our material aside for what we purchased for one, one of our customers who's not aerospace or defense, we purchased to aerospace material specifications and AMS specs or uh, mill specs. So uh, when we go through our material uh, container, to see what's out of spec, it's because a revision on one of those AMF specs has gone is has changed, and once well, you know once that revision has changed, we have 18 months from the change date of the revision to use that previous revision. So after mm -hmm. that, we can't use it anymore. So it's <laughs> yeah. So we don't actually buy for stock. We don't maintain. We don't buy material specifically to keep on the shelf. Um, we order as we need it, and then but we have, always have odd odd ends. So, on the other end, when you're shipping the parts, do you put them in a bed of feathers or how do you <laughs> <laughs> protect the parts? No, I mean, so we've got customers that have um, certain shipping requirements and we, we do, we pretty much, we do whatever our cust customer wants us to do to, you know, within reason. 
Um, but, you know, a lot of them, they get shipped in their own plastic tubes or containers. Um, sometimes there's special military grade packaging we have to put it in to prevent rust. Nice. Uh, we do make this um, matched piston sleeve set made out of tool seal. So they all, they, like the set gets matched and then they are um, um, heat sealed in plastic bags with desiccants inside both pieces so that they don't rust and then put into a mat uh, plastic container as a match set so that they don't get mixed up with anything else. Um, sometimes our customers are okay with things just being in bubble wrap, you know, mm -hmm. it's, and I'm, and I'm a big uh, fan of having worked in shipping and receiving for a long time myself. Um, there's not no such thing as too much bubble wrap to protect your parts. So we have more shipping supplies than I would like to admit to at the shop. <laughs> the last thing you want is the part to come back because it was damaged in shipping. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This has been a lot of fun, Kristen. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. And I think our listeners have been given a lot to think about. I really appreciate how you were open about being a female in the custom manufacturing world, the sharing of your teachings of the under uh, under your age with uh, what a good work ethic is I, I liked how you asked them first what that was that was that that's a great way to do it it gets them engaged you're not just talking to them so that was something i picked up i, I think that would have been effective in in my shop because we certainly had some of the issues you were talking about and then just the whole workforce you have a choice. You can complain about it or you can do something about it. And I love how you're doing something about it. So do you have a challenge regarding creating a larger workforce for custom manufacturing that you want to throw out to other shop owners? Yeah. I mean, it's again, if you, you know, if you, if you're asked to talk to a group, if you're asked to do a shop tour, if someone from the state wants to hear from you, because you could speak to, you know, what a difference that this can make, take them, take those opportunities. It's up to us. You know, I challenge everyone out there to do their part to change the narrative, because even though we've been working on this for a long time, you know, machining is still viewed as that dark and dirty, you know, grandfather's workshop and no kid of mine's going to work there. I grew up like that too, before we bought, my dad bought the company. So right. us only, we, we're the ones who can change the narrative. And if you get enough younger people in your shop, they will help change the narrative too. Anything else that we didn't cover you want to share with shop owners before we leave them? Oh, you know, it's, it's, these are, Definitely challenging times we're in right now. Um, I'm sure. sure most of us, I mean, we're, we're gangbusters right now because of the work that we do already. So we're very lucky. Um, but, you know, don't, don't let anyone out, you know, despite no matter what time type of time we're in, um, you know, you guys know, they all know best on what their companies can do. You know, don't let anyone tell you, you can't do something. Don't, don't listen. If anyone in your shop is, you know, down talking a new customer that you're bringing in, they're not confident that, you know, you can make any money for it. Trust your gut, trust your judgment. You can listen to them, but ultimately we're the ones taking the risks and there are mm -hmm. risks to take. Absolutely. So we told folks to check out your blogs at peerlessprecision.com. How about finding you, Kristen? Are you 
on LinkedIn or anything like that? Facebook? Yep, I am on LinkedIn and I am on Facebook. Um, and it is, I'm Kristen with an I, not an E. <laughs> right, and that's K-R-I-S-T-I-N. Yep. So, and that'll be in the show notes. Well, folks, that's it for another stellar episode of the Job Shop Show. I encourage you to leave us a five-star review on whatever is your favorite podcast platform. And please email us with questions, comments, suggestions. We want to add value to your day when you listen. You are our customer, and we want to know how we can help you up your game. So stay healthy, keep your team healthy, and all of the best of luck in keeping the spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a super day. Thank <laughs> you.